Welcome, Benny Miller uh, from University of Haifa. Uh, this is our continuing uh, conversations on peaceful change. Um, I'm visiting your lovely campus and beautiful city, historic city of Haifa, and it is a pleasure to be with you. And uh, today we are going to talk a little bit about your uh, new book that's coming out of uh, University of Chicago Press, uh, American Grand Strategy from Truman to Trump. And um, so tell us a little bit about this excellent idea, how you got the idea, what's the gist of it, very briefly for our audience who may not know what you are working on and the purpose, why did you write this book at this time? Uh, yeah, very good question, and uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here, uh, Professor Paul, at the University of Haifa, and we are uh, long-time friends and colleagues, and it's uh, another opportunity to uh, discuss uh, all these uh, great issues. Actually, the idea came after the uh, 2003 American invasion of Iraq. The puzzle was really a great puzzle. Why would the United States invade such a distant, uh, faraway country without posing an immediate uh, threat to American national security, at least not in the classical sense? Mm -hmm. And also, supposedly having this aim of uh, regime change mm -hmm. and uh, imposing democratization. Mm -hmm. And then to think more broadly, how does it fit or doesn't fit mm -hmm. the overall kind of American grand strategy post-1945 right. and to try to account for the key changes, mm -hmm. but to look for a relatively simple a parsimonious mm. explanation okay. of all these uh, changes. Big picture, yes. Right, mm. right. Mm. Starting from uh, the early Cold War years yes, yes. And, uh, and whether the same factors mm. can account for all these changes. Mm. Obviously, some variation of in course. these factors, some changes in this factor can account for all the changes from Truman to Trump and yes. in between. So there is continuity, although there is, you find some changes. Yeah. But the continuity needs to be explained. That's what you are trying yeah, to do. Yeah, the continuity is that uh, always uh, the idea is to maintain, preserve American national security. Yes. But they are competing, they are completely different uh, and competing ideas how to do it. Yes. And Missions. I kind of uh, identify four approaches. Okay, let's explain a little bit what are those four approaches and how do they account for the continuity and change? Right. Um, yeah. So uh, two two approaches focus on power. Mm. One power maximization yes. that the United States should be the hegemon, should be superior to its competitors, right. and only then that will uh, guarantee American security, mm. national security. Mm. Mm. Uh, then the other one on power is power restraint. To be very moderate, because otherwise you will generate an intense security dilemma. You will frighten the others, oh, and there will be an arms race, right. and that will make America national security worse yes. rather than better. Yes. Then two completely different ideas are focused on intentions, mm. or more specifically on the type of regime mm. and the, of the other the other side, kind of the fundamental intention. Mm -hmm. One is more moderate. Uh, uh, trying to encourage cooperation through so international institutions. So it's more like the liberal approach. <laughs> right, yes. right. The yes. more def I call it, I define it as defensive liberal, okay. the more moderate. Mm. Then there is an offensive liberal, mm. the idea 
that actually you can impose democracy mm-hmm. on other countries and rivals, especially those who... Intervention, two right, interventions. Right, but, and, but let me explain just briefly the logic behind it. The logic behind it is that uh, liberals believe in the universality of the liberal tenets. Right. Namely, it's not limited to the West, like uh, the clash of civilization that yes. did, the Antiquitone, mm-hmm. but it's really universal. Yes. And uh, just there are other people, other nations, who are imprisoned by their despot, by their dictators, yes. Yeah. And the America can come and liberate the people. Liberate, yes. So the America should be the American soldiers should be saluted, Salute, should be yes, welcomed yes, there. So, but they have created a lot of problems right, in that process. Right, right. The interventions have not gone right, smoothly, right. and there right. is a counteroffensive by the non not so liberal forces. Right, and that creates a lot of challenges for America because on the one hand it's ideological liberalism, on the other hand it behaves like any great power empire of the past. Right offensive, its own interest. So there's a conflict between this liberal uh, peacefulness right. or whatever versus real politic oriented uh, national interest driven, uh, you know, the kind of uh, divisions that you noticed. So how do they justify the use okay. of both in one sure. grand strategy? So it's an excellent point. I will distinguish here between the Cold War and the post-Cold War era. In the Cold War, and the logic is that once you have a great power competitor, mm. then uh, the system, the external circumstances compel you to behave in a realist or power-oriented power fashion. And right. you cannot really focus too much on the question of regime and, and the intentions and all of that and shaping that because mm. it's too expensive mm. and it's too luxurious mm. under these circumstances. Yes. However, mm. when you are the sole superpower mm. in, the, in the system, then you can afford, at least potentially, to think about changing this the other uh, forces in the system and making them liberal like you mm. because of a number of reasons. Mm. One is economic, mm. then obviously you will have free trade free and all trade, this economic yes, independence. Yes. And, Adam Smith. Right, yeah. right. Uh, the second idea is ideological. Mm. Uh, you know, if you Americans uh, at least used to be until Trump believe sincerely in, in, in liberalism and its universality and so mm. on, so why it wouldn't succeed? Mm. And then security. Supposedly the idea that if you make the other great powers or other threatening powers mm. into democracies, when they grow up and become stronger, mm. they, they wouldn't pose a threat to you mm. because they would be democracies. Yeah, and supposedly, yeah. according to the democratic peace theory, yes. the idea that democracies don't fight each, fight other, each other, they wouldn't yes. pose a real threat. Yes. So you have a, a number of reasons why mm. to try. This was actually the reason why the U.S. opened up to China considerably, hoping that China Absolutely. would become... Rich and democratic. Absolutely. Actually, I tried to address all the key attempts at liberalization. Mm -hmm. So China, Russia, in different ways, and the Arab Muslim world. Mm -hmm. Uh, China was, indeed, it was through trade, globalization, and especially joining uh, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, 2001, and then uh, making China part of globalization, international institution, integrating it, and so on. That, to some extent, succeeded. On the other hand, it completely didn't make China into liberal democracy or something. So that's where the so-called offensive realist idea comes from, because they would argue that whatever ideology you talk and you know for the chinese and the russians it's basically power struggle you know you you are the great empire we are another empire our status needs to be recognized in our own ways it doesn't mean that we are going to accept your mode of governance or your system what you're trying to do is to impose your hegemony on us uh, how does um, how do americans think or look at that criticism these russians or the chinese make 
Right. Yeah, I think a realist, mm. uh, the realist logic opposes American behavior, the post-Cold War American behavior, mm. and trying to shape the domestic character, mm. because they, they say it's futile, mm. it's costly, and it's dangerous. Yes. So you really should avoid that mm. and just uh, maintain the balance of power mm. and uh, think about your security in kind of the realist power ideas, not trying to shape ideas. ideologies and, and so on. So I think they oppose it. Mm. But still, I'm trying to explain mm. the behavior by systemic explanation. Mm. So even though it's counter the realist... By systemic, you mean international right. level explanation. Right, yes. right. Namely, that uh, once you are the sole superpower in the system, mm. you have this tendency to try to shape other because of all this ideological, yes. economic, and security. Yes, yes. Then the distinction is between the offensive and defensive variant. Mm. The defensive would be when the system is benign, mm. when it doesn't look, at least not in the foreseeable future, that others pose a major threat to you. And right. that was the situation in the 1990s. Mm. The United States, the source of one, the system, but the system looked very benign and yes. the whole and so on. Yes. This changed in 9-11, mm. because 9-11 supposedly clarified to Americans that mm. the, the system is, uh, the external environment is mm. still threatening and mm. it might be major threat. Mm. And then the idea came, this offensive liberal, namely, to change, even if mm. by use of force, yes. the regime of others, yes. uh, especially if, uh, the part of the world from which the 19 kidnappers yes. came, yes. which was the Arab world, yes. which by the way, was the only, by the early 21st century, was the only region in the world in which there was no a single functioning democracy. Yes. So the Americans make the, made this association. Mm. Terrorists come from the Arab world, yes. and there is no democracy there, so there, it's a reason. Simple so because there is, yes. no, there is no democracy, yes. Al-Qaeda yes. could emerge in the Arab world. Yes. So if we make them democratic, then Al-Qaeda yes. will disappear yes. and will... So in a way, it is this highly real politic-oriented, uh, you know, George Bush and his... Uh, associates, uh, Cheney and all those people, Absolutely, yeah. uh, using liberal idea, buying liberal idea, but with a very realist um, uh, bend of mind, you know, changing uh, them according to our yeah. image. I, I, I would call it offensively liberal. I would say the following. Mm. After they came to power, obviously they were a very realist group. All of them, Gondolisa Rice and Rumsfeld and Powell in different ways. Mm. And, and all of them were against regime change, right. and, uh, democracy, mm. human rights, humanitarian intervention, all this. Uh, they associated it with Clinton and they condemned it and thought it's useless. Yeah. But this change after 9-11, and that's one indicator that highlighted my argument mm. that the external environment, that something that happened externally, mm. can change the behavior of decision makers mm. in a major way. So mm. suddenly Bush and all uh, is the, the key decision makers mm. adopted this, what is called usually neoconservative, what I call offensive liberal idea, mm. that in order to reduce the national security threat coming from Al-Qaeda, namely from the Arab world, mm. that's probably Al-Qaeda. So your theory is very much systemic that way, because right. it gives primacy to the system. Right. And the threats coming from the systemic forces. Right. And the distribution of power. The, the combined effect mm. of distribution of power, mm. distribution of capabilities, mm. whether it's a sole uh, superpower or there are a great power parity, mm. that's one uh, factor. The other factor is the level of threat. Is the, there is a high threat mm. environment or is it a very benign environment? So is and it a kind of a neoclassical approach or is it more than that? Yeah, it's, it, to some extent it's a systemic kind of world change, but on the other hand it does have the neo, neoclassical realist in the mm. sense that 
the external environment shaped the domestic debate, and right. through the domestic debate, it also shaped the great the decision maker perceptions, right. and so on. So I have some role for the domestic and perception, perception. even though still, mm. I think that the systemic and especially these two factors, the balance mm. of threat yes. and the social capability, yes. shape. the uh, domestic debate, the yes. domestic struggle between different approaches. Yes. And uh, one of the criticisms people like Mearsheimer um, makes of uh, liberalism or liberals in general, you are fundamentally realist, you know, when it comes to American national interest, you act like realist. Uh, even the constructivists, I have never seen a constructivist who is opposed to American hegemony. Maybe the critical theorists are, but not the, the mainstream IR as we see. They all want the American hegemony to stay on as long as it can. They may have visions, different approaches to how the hegemony should look. I think that Mearsheimer argument has some point, relevance, isn't it? The liberal, are, they, are they really truly liberals if they say it's my system has to dominate, then only the world will be better, you know? No, I do think that the hardcore of the academic realists like Mearsheimer, Wald, Posen and so on, yeah. oppose a liberal foreign policy mm. and they 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 think it's disastrous mm. but still there is a puzzle yeah. for them how they explain yes. the American behavior That's at right. the very least after the collapse of the Soviet Union after yeah. December 1991 when yeah. the system become yeah. unipolar they expected America to behave in realist terms and to avoid all this regime change and yes. uh, and all these liberal ideas and that didn't happen so yes. the puzzle is why this is so. And I explain it supposedly by realist terms, but I call it systemic, yes. even though the derived behavior is actually non-realist, is, is anti-realist, mm. and they condemn it. So it's nice that they condemn it, but that's for policy debate. Mm. It's not for explanatory purposes. Right. They don't have the explanation mm. why, why, why the behavior, it, you know, yes. for almost three decades. So yes. it's, it's a real puzzle. Yes, uh, but there is the other side of it, which is, Whatever gives legitimacy and durability to American hegemony is this liberal idea. What is missing in the case of Russia and China, for instance, they don't have a universal, I mean, before the right. communist, communist period they had. Right. But today they are very much for themselves, it's the empire kind of building. The American hegemony could persist even after it is gone materially because of some of these elements of, you know, what it is uh, continuing, which is liberal idea and the idea of freedom, institutions, all that the U.S. has been helping to set up, but of course right now it's in a different mode of uh, my uh, setup already. So the question is, um, how do realists account for that kind of, you know, legitimacy, durability, classical realist did, right. not, yeah. not the modern, uh, the modern yeah. versions, classical, I mean, Morgando and all had some understanding of legitimacy of power, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I think the modern realists uh, just basically they have this uh, policy advice mm. to uh, either to maintain American dominance or at least to maintain the balance of power in the key regions of the world, you know, the offshore, yeah. Yeah, the offshore balancing, mm. namely to avoid the rise uh, of a hegemon in one of these three key regions which affect the global balance of power, mm -hmm. or the Posen idea of restraint. Mm. Just behave very moderately, trying a bit to disengage mm. uh, and not to intervene too much mm. and uh, definitely also to 
uh, encourage your allies mm. to take care of their own security, especially if they are uh, rich, like the Europeans, the yes. Japanese, the, maybe even the South Koreans, mm. to take care of their own mm. uh, defense spending and so on. Mm. And the United States shouldn't be, shouldn't be there mm. because it might lead, at least uh, inadvertently, to America yes. engagement in, in fighting. It's a bit like the old isolationist argument. It's yeah, no, no, I would say it's a limited, uh, yeah, it's yeah. a limited isolation. Yeah. An interesting question in this context is what are the similarities and differences between Trumpism mm. and realism? I, actually, I want to bring you to okay. that question. Sure. Uh, Trump is, um, in your chapter, you are putting him kind of a different category, not in IR theory yet, offensive, illiberal, national, nationalist or whatever. Now, the so, question is, is Trump an anomaly or is he... Uh, uh, passing phenomenon in terms of theoretical this this grand tradition, or is he going to leave some uh, ideas behind for American grand strategy? I think I'm afraid mm. it's not a completely passing phenomenon. I mean, you know, Trump personally obviously is because yes, it's yes. decision making. Yeah, behavior. yeah, he's very unique. But the logic behind it, and there is a certain logic, even if it is not able to express it and to, you know, in a coherent way and, uh, and so on, there is a certain logic. In it. One is the high cost the United States paid for this liberal, especially the offensive liberal, mm -hmm. what he calls the endless wars, mm -hmm. especially in the Middle East. And there is a, a constituency mm -hmm. that uh, definitely likes this idea of disengagement, yes. definitely from the greater Middle East, including yes. Afghanistan and yes. Libya and all the Arab world and all of that. Uh, secondly is the rise of China yes. and the changing distribution of capabilities also lead to uh, kind of new thinking. Mm. But also certainly there is a domestic component and this is the identity issue. Yes. And that's the changing character of American society, mm. which okay. is one of the key reasons of the rise of populism. Yes. Uh, white nationalist populism yes. because uh, these people f fear that they are losing their control of American society economic, because economic America, yeah also the no, also the you know the colored people yeah. are going to be the majority in American society yes. the white are going to lose their their majority yeah. and, and potentially their, their so dominance. one other thing about American grand strategy has been this reasonable domestic consensus still despite all the differences that America should lead in a post-war period America should promote all this. But with this societal divisions of this nature developing, some groups are going to say, you know, let us fix our things here, not go into. What does that do to American hegemony? I mean, there's a good chance that uh, some crises could happen. Uh, and then the same people will say, let's go and fight, you know. So the American grand strategy or this threat perception is cyclical in that sense, you know. When the threat, right. like your theory says, the threat comes they change. Right. The same people right. will say, let's go and fight, you know? I think the key variable is uh, the rise of China, mm. and particularly the type of behavior that China or the perception of China is. Mm. If China is perceived indeed as the liberals, the especially defensive liberals, mm. sought initially, mm. you know, integrated into the international system, to international institutions, right. and uh, encourage globalization and trade, yes. mm. it will be more kind of a defensive, realist uh, mm. behavior vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, trying to maintain the balance of power but not be too aggressive towards it and uh, try to accommodate it and right. well but if uh, China indeed continue for example in the maritime dispute mm -hmm. you know this construction of artificial islands yes. and 
and let alone, let's say, invasion of Taiwan or yeah. a major security yeah. threat to Taiwan or to India or to any other Japan, of its neighbors, yeah. I think that will give a munition to mm. more kind of an offensive realist in the sense mm. that uh, it will be a similar policy so like to that, the Soviet Union. I want to talk a little bit about the Chinese grand strategy. So far has been quite careful, except Xi Jinping's a little bit of more pushy. Belt and Road Initiative, the U.S. is not counteracting, and nobody is uh, as much as uh, they expected. So the Chinese are avoiding security dilemma by playing this way of economic expansion without too much military, although they are doing some. It's not still perceived as threat, sufficient level of threat in Washington to start another big Cold War, although now we are hearing a lot about the coming Cold War. But Still, there is a reluctance because this is the number one trading partner of most countries in the world today. In Asia Pacific, although it is doing a lot of things, it is not going to lose its connections to all the small states. So America will have a tough time finding allies to fight if there is a real threat. So how does that fit into this grand strategy mix that you are providing? How does it explain you have a different kind of a rising power? which is very clever in its strategy, using economic opportunities, but not necessarily threatening as big as Soviet Union did, you know, for instance. Right. But uh, to some extent, there is a changing the landscape of the debate in uh, D.C. in the sense that there is a greater support for idea that China become more offensive than until two years, until few years ago, until Xi Jinping. Mm. Uh, 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 you know, um, begin a more assertive policy, both economically as well as strategically. Yes. I think the consensus was that indeed, uh, inter integrating China international system, it yes. will become, a, it, you know, it will be a status quo power, mm. initially satisfy, it benefits a lot from globalization, from trade, all of that, and give it the right place in international institutions and so on. But I think now it's uh, changing, partly because of the assertive economic policy, trade yes. and so on, and, and Trump used it for the trade war. Yes. But also strategically, I mean, looking at the South China Sea yeah. and, the, you know, remember this quarrel with the Philippines, it yes. was brought to the International Court of Justice. Yeah. Uh, they decided in favor of the Philippines and China just doesn't comply. Yeah. And uh, obviously it's difficult to, <laughs> to compel China to comply. Yeah, but, but what is noticeable is the reactions by these powers are still muted. They sent through some ships, U.S. Uh, freedom right. of navigation. Absolutely. Uh, even the Philippines occasionally make some noises, but there's no consistent effort to stop the uh, production of, or, or you know, building up of all these uh, little forces they have and islets, etc. What is the? What do you think the expectation that China will one day? slow it down, or what, what is the expectation? Yeah, the, definitely there's some slowdown in the economy and so on. Yeah. But I think that there is a perception that China wants to be the domi dominant power, yes. at the very least in Asia Pacific. Yes. And, that, and that's something the United States cannot concede, mm. because this is now the most important region mm. for the global balance of power, for the global trade, economy. for the global economy, yeah. and so on. So America cannot concede, so it would lead to at the very least, intense competition between the U.S. and China, yes, yes. who is going to be the dominant power. Like, it used to be in Europe, yeah. now it shifted to East Asia. So, but it could be a different form of rivalry, because the trade could still continue. And still, I mean, the Britain and Germany had trade, by the way, uh, before World War One. And it didn't so, prevent the war. It didn't prevent the war. So that's the question. A crisis can come even in such a relationship. 
and the system is not ready for uh, you know managing uh, such a crisis so based on all this analysis what does it mean for the final discussion is sort of for the regions such as the middle east uh, the great powers uh, this grand strategy what does that do for regional order for for peace in this region or order in this region no i think it has a major major implications because uh, at the very least, since the Camp David Accord, the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt in the late 1970s, mm. the United States was the key broker of Middle Eastern conflicts. Yes. Now it is changing, uh, partly because of the disengaging uh, America, especially mm. under Trump, even yes. though it started also under Obama, at least yes. partly. Yes. And uh, on the other hand, Russia more assertive behavior. Yes and also the regional powers, mm. the non-Arab regional powers, mm. Iran, Turkey, and Israel. Mm. And that makes the region much more dangerous mm. than it used, to bo- it used to be, because there isn't this acceptable broker. To some extent, Russia is trying to play mm. this role and to fill the vacuum uh, left by the United States. Mm. But, I, but uh, Russia, I think, is, has a lot of disadvantages mm. compared to uh, the United States. Mm and uh, is a bit more aggressive and, and so on. And, and also uh, not completely sure that it will be able to play this role. So I think there is going to be a very intense kind of global regional uh, uh, competition and uh, especially the rising, yeah. yeah, and especially the rising regional powers, mm-hmm. Iran, yes. Turkey, and yes. Israel, and the, particularly the Iranian-Israeli conflict mm-hmm. is uh, definitely it's very dangerous uh, stage. Yes. And the question, Ra- Russia tried to play the broker in this mm-hmm. in this conflict, yes. but I'm not sure it trusted by the parties as the United States used to be at least for a while mm-hmm. between at least the mainstream Arab states and Israel. Mm-hmm. Now it's less trusted and it play its own game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to some extent, it's already a big change that uh, Russia is trying to fill this vacuum uh, left yes. by the United States. Yes. So, Benny, thank you so much for this nice conversation. And uh, it's, uh, we'll continue this discussion once your book uh, comes out. Hopefully, we'll have more panels and discussions. The book is supposed to come out by the end of the year. Right. The right. University of Chicago Press. It is an extremely interesting discussion of American grand strategy uh, from a theoretical point of view. Thank you so much, Benny. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure.